You know, I love it when we have a chance to get together as the Christ Journey family. And today, from wherever you're making your connection, around the world, across the nation, right here in South Florida, we are praying God's blessing upon your life and your leadership. The title of this talk may sound strange, but I believe it's a leadership essential in today's world. The title is Competently Incompetent. Competently incompetent. Let me explain. We probably all agree that competence is a leadership essential. It matters for the leader to have the know-how and the skill to do the job. And competence means that you've got what it takes, the ability to do your job successfully. Uh, Coach Butch Davis told our staff in a leadership setting one time, the best indicator of a, an athlete's future performance their past performance. That means proven competence. So it matters. If you need surgery, you want a doctor who knows how and can do it successfully, right? She's competent. He's competent. If you want to invest your money, you want an advisor who knows what they're doing. If you want to learn a new language, then you want a teacher who can speak it. Competence matters. But these days, competence isn't what it used to be. I mean, it still matters, but in a time where innovative disruption keeps reinventing the world, yesterday's competence can leave you in the dust when it comes to facing today's challenges. You know the phrase, fighting the last war? It means believing in and using strategy and tactics that won your last battle, but may not be effective in facing your new challenge. And many today, are still fighting the last war when it comes to business, when it comes to family, culture, uh, at home, at large. Digital technology in an information age means everything is changing. Amazon is redefining retail, right? I heard recently that medical knowledge doubles every 78 days. That means we're all on the learning curve, right? Pastor Dave says, you know, I got smart devices. I got a smartphone. I got a smart TV. I'm the dumbest thing in my house. We're all on the learning curve. And sometimes it feels like that scene from Apollo 13, putting the square peg in the round hole. Gene, we have a situation brewing with the carbon dioxide. We had a CO2 filter problem on the lunar module. Five filters on a limb. Which were meant for two guys for a day and a half. So I told the doctor. You're already up to eight on the gauges. Anything over 15 and you get impaired judgment, blackouts, the beginnings of brain asphyxia. What about the scrubbers on the command module? They take square cartridges. The ones on the limb are round. <laughs> Tell me this isn't a government operation. It just isn't a contingency we've remotely looked at. Those CO2 levels are going to be getting toxic. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Rapidly. Okay, people, listen up. People upstairs, handed us this one, and we gotta come through. We gotta find a way to make this fit into the hole for this, using nothing but that. Let's get it organized. Okay, okay, let's build a filter. Better get some coffee going, too, someone. So, you wanna keep breathing? Figure out how to put the square peg in the round hole and build a filter from this mess of parts and you're on the clock. There are times 
where current competence must be applied in a new way. That's the Apollo 13 dilemma. But what about when the way you've learned it, the way you were taught, doesn't cut it anymore? What about when the way that, uh, that you learned your skill doesn't match the challenge that you face? Now, that's the scenario that Paul brings us into in his very personal letter, Philippians chapter 3. The way he'd been taught to face life, to please God, to rise and succeed in his nation wasn't having the desired impact. And uh, he wants us to know how he had to learn how to unlearn. He had to learn a new way to live, to live a way competently incompetent, how to hold on by letting go. How do you hold on by letting go? Well, let's enter the story and find out. In verse four, he shows us how he'd been fighting the last war. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have. Confidence in the flesh means trusting his own efforts and abilities. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's a Hebrew religious rite, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, when it comes to zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. It's like he's saying, myancestry.com shows that I've got the pedigree and I've got the record. I mean, when it comes to self-help and self-made manhood, <laughs> Nobody could do more with what they've been given than I have. Paul has got the reputation and the track record that any self-respecting, self-promoting, self-righteous man would love to have. He's saying, and I was raised that way. From the time I was a baby, and I'm part of God's choice covenant community, my family was part of the tribe that stayed faithful to God when all the others were falling away and rebelling. And uh, in fact, it was the tribe of the first king, Saul. Maybe he was even Paul's namesake. He was Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul the missionary. As for my education in the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. That's like saying, you know, I'm one of God's Marines, the few, the proud. I mean, we take it seriously. They study the law. They know the law. Paul was an expert. He developed expert knowledge of scriptures under the leading Rabbi Gamaliel of his day of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish high court. And the great, he was a grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel. And then he says, you want to judge my commitment? I have persecuted people to show it. I got blood on the field. I don't just think about this. I mean it. And when it comes to legalistically keeping all, every one of the 613 Old Testament laws, I'm beyond blame. And that's how he lived his life. He was highly competent in a proud, arrogant, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-made man kind of way, kind of like Maverick in Top Gun. Gentlemen, you are the top 1% of all naval aviators. The elite, best of the best. We'll make you better. Fly at least two combat missions a day, 10 classes in between, and evaluations of your performance. Now, in each combat sequence, you're going to meet a different challenge. Every encounter is going to be much more difficult. 
We're going to teach you to fly the F-14 right to the edge of the envelope, faster than you've ever flown before. More dangerous. Uh, we don't make policy here, gentlemen. Elected officials, civilians do that. We are the instruments of that policy. And although we're not at war, we must always act as though we are at war. What are you doing? Tip the spear. Just wondering. Best be sure. Who's the best? In case some of you wonder who the best is, they're up here on this plaque on the wall. The best driver in his reel from each class has his name on it. And they have the option to come back here to be Top Gun instructors. You think your name's gonna be on that plaque? Yes, sir. That's pretty arrogant, considering the company you're in. Yes, sir. You know, <laughs> you are the elite, the best of the best. If Paul had been asked, is your name going to be on that plaque? He would have said, yes, sir, just like Maverick does. But in the movie, Maverick discovers that there's a downside to his pride. That arrogance is not the same thing as confidence. And he has to unlearn his arrogance. The competence of his macho pride has got to be relearned. And uh, Paul does the same thing. Verse seven, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. He is unlearning arrogant pride. And leaders have to do that. Unlearn your arrogant human pride. If you have been depending on arrogance for your confidence, then humility may feel like incompetence. May I say that again? If you've been depending on your arrogance for your confidence, then humility may feel like incompetence. And in fact, it is. Being humble is being competently incompetent. It's being honest enough to say, I can't do life by my pride alone. I've got to learn how to let go and hold on in a new way. Maverick does it in his story. Paul does it in his story. They let go of arrogant pride. Verse eight, I consider everything, Paul says. That means all the stuff I've listed and more. Everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Now that's a strong word. It occurs only here in the Bible. It means feces. It's stuff you flush. And he's saying, I got to let go of arrogance and hold on to what matters in Christ. What has he found in Christ? Verse 9, I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That means being good by keeping rules. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead, God's kind of goodness in Christ conquers death. And that's like way beyond the rule book. And Paul says, that's what I want. 
Instead of settling for a self-made man through keeping rules, Paul says, I have discovered something superior, a surpassing greatness that makes all of my efforts flushable. I mean, you think Amazon's been disruptive to uh, retail. Look at what Jesus has done to self-righteous rule-keeping. Paul's saying, I'm learning a whole new way of relating to God personally by trusting Christ. It's not up to me to be good enough for God. I hold on to God by letting go of self-righteousness. I let go of self-made living of self-made religion by holding on to what God has done for me in Christ. I let go of self-reliant arrogance and I hold on to God-reliance confidence. I hold on by letting go. And I'm learning. I'm learning uh, a new way to rise that takes me out of human effort in a no-win scenario of rule-keeping. I mean, I love the scene in Star Trek, uh, the first of the movies, where Cadet James Tiberius Kirk of Starfleet Academy is facing the Kobayashi Maru test. It's an exercise designed intentionally to be a no-win scenario. It throws leaders in training into a no-win scenario where the cadet crew must decide whether they will follow orders facing certain death to rescue this um, ailing ship under attack or whether they will save themselves. And the rub of the test is that it is programmed to be un winnable. Here's the clip. Taking the test again. You've got to be kidding. Yeah, tomorrow morning and I want you there. But, you know, I've got better things to do than watch you embarrass yourself for a third time. I'm a doctor, Jim. I'm busy. Bones, it doesn't bother you that no one's ever passed the test. Jim, it's the Kobayashi Maru. No one passes the test and no one goes back for seconds, let alone thirds. I gotta study. We are receiving a distress signal from the USS Kobayashi Maru. The ship has lost power and it's stranded. Starfleet Command has ordered us to rescue them. Starfleet Command has ordered us to rescue them. Captain. Two Klingon vessels have entered the neutral zone and are locking weapons on us. That's okay? That's okay? Yeah, don't worry about it. Did he say don't worry about it? Is he not taking the simulation seriously? Three more Klingon warbirds decloaking and targeting our ship. I don't suppose this is a problem either. They're firing, Captain. Alert medical beta prepare to receive all crew members from the damaged ship. And how do you expect us to rescue them when we're surrounded by Klingons, Captain? Alert medical. Our ship is being hit. Shields at 60%. I understand. Or should we, I don't know, fire back? No. Of course not. What is this? What's going on? Arm photons, prepare to fire on the Klingon warbirds. Yes, sir. Jim, their shields are still up. Are they? No, they're not. Fire on all enemy ships. One photon each should do. Let's not waste ammunition. Target locked and acquired on all warbirds. Firing. <laughs> All ships destroyed, Captain. Begin rescue of the stranded crew. So, we've managed to eliminate all enemy ships. No one on board was injured, 
and the successful rescue of the Kobayashi Maru crew is underway. How did that kid beat your test? I do not know. The test was programmed to be unwinnable. From a traditional standard operating procedure, rule-keeping perspective, a little later in the movie, Kirk is accused of violating the ethical code of conduct. His accuser says that Kirk, in facing uh, what was designed to be a no-win scenario, had somehow managed to install and activate a subroutine in the programming code and change the conditions of the test. He accuses him of cheating, and he says a captain cannot cheat death. And yet, what Kirk just showed is, yes, he can. And then he gives us his vision statement, Captain Kirk does. I don't believe in a no-win scenario. Now listen, that's what Paul says Christ has done when the no-win scenario with death. In a new way, he cheated death and then activated in his resurrection something that changes the condition for all who trust him in facing that test. But you don't get there on your own. You gotta learn how to unlearn, how to hold on by letting go. You gotta be available to what God is calling you to do. And don't confuse Kirk's uh, confidence, his nonchalant confidence with, um, with the brash arrogance of Maverick. Maverick went full throttle uh, on his pride and it cost him dearly. Paul knew about how pride costs lives. But Kirk, in order to save lives, was willing to try something never before tried and think a new way and let go of standard procedure in bold risk and as such accomplished a life-saving mission. Paul says that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took an unwinnable test upon himself so that we could now pass it because of his success. And that's what Paul is saying, verse 10. So we can know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so to attain the resurrection of the dead. We're gonna win this no-win scenario. And that's part of what water baptism means, by the way, that when our bodies die and they lay us in the grave, you know what we're looking forward to? Rising and ascending to be with him because of what Christ has done. But Paul says to experience that victory, you gotta hold on by letting go. He has to learn how to, uh, how to think a new way. Leaders do, have to do that too. We have to unlearn your inability to learn. Now, you ever say old dogs can't learn new tricks? You know, leaders don't say that. We say being teachable is being competently incompetent. I mean, learning to think God's way can leave you feeling 
incompetent at times, right? But God can show you there is no such thing as a no-win scenario in him. Nothing is impossible for God. And so we let Christ show us how to unlearn things that we used to hold on to, unlearn arrogant human pride, how to unlearn our inability to learn and stay change-ready, whatever the circumstance, how to hold on by letting go of self, hold on to God, by letting go of self. And then what? Well, then life gets real exciting. I mean, hold on now because Paul says we're living heavenward. We're no longer earthbound. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Beyond death, beyond resurrection, God has an eternal future in store for you, for all who trust Christ in heaven. You are meant for more than merely this life, more than a mere earthbound existence. The word translated, by the way, press on here is the word persecute. The same word that Paul used, he said, you know, concerning zeal, I persecuted people. Now he's saying, now I am, instead of persecuting people, I am aggressively hunting down a new goal. I am harassing everything that stands in the way of my heavenly future. And Christian leaders are to do that too, to unlearn the grip of earthly gravity. When are we supposed to do it? Now! That's the battle of life. And it moves Paul's to tears, he says in this text, to think that many live their lives as enemies of Christ's cross. Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. That means they, they're driven by their appetites. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is on what? earthly things. The gravitational pull of earthbound living is controlling them. You know what that earthly pull says? You got to have earthly things. Their minds are occupied by earthly things. Their lives are driven by earthly appetites, and, uh, and they live to feed, to feed their hungers, to feed their bodily pleasures, to live for what they take in, to consume. Now, believers, Paul says, have a higher destiny. We're to live heavenward. Now, we have to consume to live. We know that. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but we do need bread to live. But we're not consumed by consuming. That's what he's saying. We're not to live as consumers, but rather as contributors. Have you seen Despicable Me? Remember this? Now, I know there have been some rumors going around that the bank is no longer funding us. Well, I am here to put those rumors to rest. They are true. In terms of money, we have no money. So how will we get to the moon? The answer is clear. We won't. We are doomed. Now would probably be a good time to look for other employment options. 
I know I have fired up my resume as I suggested all of you do as well. What is it? Can't you see that I'm in the middle of a pep talk? Just when it looks like all is lost, generosity breaks through. And the orphan girls bring their piggy bank and offer everything they have. And then we discover what? The minions have money and they're willing to share. And so now the mission can go forward. We will build our rocket using this and whatever else we can find. They unlearn the grip of Earth's gravity by the power of generosity. Did you know the letter to the Philippians was written as a thank you note for the generous financial support that Paul had received in his ministry from the people. And he says in response, heaven will open up. He says, verse 19, chapter four, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus because of generosity. And Jesus wants us to be generous. Jesus taught, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19. Now, how are we supposed to do that? I believe a good Bible answer is through our financial gifts in tithes and offerings. Malachi chapter three, verse 10 is where this shows up. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, God says, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't have room for it. Now, What's a whole tithe? It's a good question. Tithe means 10%. If you make a dollar, give a dime. If you make a hundred, give 10. If you make a thousand, give a hundred. Now, sometimes people will say, well, is that gross or is it off gross or net? Well, it's off of everything. Your gross amount, the whole tithe means off gross. Say, well, that's gross. No, God says that's growth. It, that takes faith and it defies the gravity of earthbound materialism and greed. So bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Well, the center where ministry is offered. In the Old Testament, it was the temple. In our day, it's the church. And so we bring a whole tithe, 10%, into the church is a bold step of earthbound, gravity-defying, generous faith. An offering then is anything given above the tithe. That's what the difference. Tithe is 10%. Offering is anything above the tithe. You're wondering, well, what if I give less than the tithe? Well, at best, it would be considered a step toward the tithe. But at the time that Malachi was speaking, God said, you know, it's like robbing me. 
He told the people of Israel, you ask, how do we rob you? And the Lord says, in tithes and in offerings, and you're under a curse because you're robbing me. You're being gravity bound and taken down because you're not living up. You may be thinking, well, man, that's heavy. But let me say this. If you have never trusted God with your financial life, it can feel that way. But in keeping with this message, listen, it's God's way of breaking the grip of materialism and giving us lift to a higher ground in his life. We unlearn the grip of earth's gravity through generosity. Being generous is being competently incompetent. It is holding on to heaven by letting go of earth. And as we step into that blessing through giving our tithes and our offerings, God not only breaks the grip, defies the gravity of greed, but he provides ministry through his church that gives liftoff to others. If you want to know how we fund the ministries of Christ's journey, it's by the tithes and offerings of our people, their free will gifts. And it's part of how God teaches us to hold on by letting go. We unlearn ways of thinking and doing that we can enter into kingdom ways in following Jesus. What do I mean? I mean, we unlearn our arrogant human pride and instead learn that being humble is being competently incompetent. We unlearn our inability to learn and instead learn that being teachable means being competently incompetent. And then we unlearn the grip of materialistic greed, the gravity of greed, and we see that being generous is being competently incompetent. And then we learn that it's really that we hold on by letting go. We hold on to God by letting go of self. And then we see, as Paul did, whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss that I may gain Christ. Pride will fail you. Greed will cheat you. Lust will deceive you. But Christ will free you if you let him. Will you? Will you let go of pride and say yes to God? Will you let go of the way you've been doing life and say yes to God's way? Will you let go of selfish greed and say yes to generosity, to trust God with a whole tithe and watch him open the heavens and lead you to be an even better and stronger Christ-following leader. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for your challenge to live lives larger than this life, that you have made a way for us to join you, not only in overcoming the gravitational forces of this fallen world, in our nature, in our culture, but then to rise above and allow you to use us to make the difference for others. 
I'm praying today for brothers and sisters who have heard your spirit clearly speak to them about their next step. Would you take that now, sister, brother? Hold on to God by letting go of self. And then perhaps you've been uh, listening in, feeling the tug of God, the knock of Jesus on your heart saying, let me in. You don't have to do life alone on your own terms. I want to offer a prayer now that could be your next step of faith and you could join me in it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are speaking to me, that you care about me, and that you desire to forgive my sin, remove the obstacles that separate us, and lift me to a new way of living until I'm with you forever in heaven. I open my life to you, I welcome your forgiveness, and I will follow your lead as I make my prayer in your name. Amen.